Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. And on today's bonus episode of The Thriller Zone, New York Times bestselling author Frank Bill and his latest thriller, Back to the Dirt. Let's get into The Thriller Zone. I'm trying to remember who turned me on to you. It was either Peter or Mark Westmerlin or Anthony Goodell or maybe all of them. Oh, it could have been... Uh, I don't know who it was, but uh, you came across the radar and they said, dude, if you're going to do any reading, I mean, come on now, come on now, get up on Frank Bill and I said, you got to go back to the dirt. Come on, boy, get on up in it. He said, <laughs> appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it. I did, dude. We're going to talk about it. I, I want to get to know you first a little bit, but boy, um, <clears throat> it makes me appreciate the war that I did not go fight in. Of course, I was a little bit young then, but uh, anyway, it, a horrifying experience. But yes, dude, you, you're a, and I'm going to get back into this a little bit. But you're you're a, you're you're like borderline poet. You really are. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. I've got good editors too. Uh, you know, editors always offer good input to the writings there, but then they want a little bit more characterization a little one a little bit more about you know shelby was probably the character that had to be developed the most you know because i have a issue with i write very minimal and action and just kind of go straight to the to your face until the very end because i don't tend to write middles in a book it kind of takes off from the first page and keeps blowing up to the very end and then it's it's over with <laughs> now see that's funny you're the first person that's uh, said that there's a couple of firsts on this show which you're going to find out here in a little bit but uh yeah everybody talks about the struggle of the middle i don't think you need it that's where it slows down that's where i usually put the book down i'm like all right come on because we talk about this there's always that what do they call it in writing classes the they call it i don't know the fat middle the chunky middle the uh, the precarious middle. There's always these different words. You know, if you if you're if you're shooting out of the gate at a third, and your last is the uh, crescendo at a third, then your middle third is quite often a half. Sure. Which is where that oh, you're like trudging through mud. You know, up waist deep mud sometimes. Yeah, it's like co a cold cup of coffee. I like to keep it hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming in hot, people. <laughs> For folks who don't know Frank Bill, you co-wrote The Ravage with author-actor Norman Reedus. He he was, yes. he did a hell of a deal on uh, Walking Dead. Yes. You also wrote The Savage and Donnybrook, which was made into a film in 2018. And I remember this. That was uh, Jamie Bell and Frank Grillo. Yep. Yep. And, dude, that was talking about in-your-face one-two punch with no middle. <laughs> no, no middle. It was more. It was streamlined from the book. There was a lot. They they bought my script, didn't use it. Director readapted, just kind of streamlined stuff and went from there. Yeah, it was. You hear a lot of that, don't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I learned a lot. You know, my wife and I had a good time. We were on the set for five days. We went up for one day of shooting in Ohio, and then I had to come back and do stuff for the Savage because the Savage was coming out. They had a book launch here in my hometown, and the next next day we went back to Ohio, or we went back to Kentucky, I'm sorry, because then they were across the bridge, and they were shooting the whole entire Donnybrook, the last part of the movie, in, in Kentucky, so we got to be there every day on the set, hang out, and meet everybody. 
really good time. There is nothing quite as fun, uh, in my opinion, as being on a movie set if you like that scene and you have a little patience because they they may set up for a shot for two or three hours. Yes. Uh, take four or five minutes to do the shot and then tear it down for two or three hours and go on to the next one or do reverses and coverage and so forth. I think the saying was get in a big hurry to wait. That's what you get in a big hurry yeah. to sit and wait. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. Everybody was really cool. You know, sure. James Batchdale was very personable, enjoyed meeting him. Um, I still keep contact with him. Uh, James Landry Hebert, who was the bartender who plays Poe. I keep in contact with him. He was super nice. Um, that's neat. Frank Grillo was nice, but he's all business. You know, he likes to stay in his head for the scenes. And then uh, same with Jamie Bell. He's more, you know, he's letting him shook his hand and stuff, but he was kind of more walking around trying to keep himself into the character and everything. He did a phenomenal job also. But then he, yeah, it is. all the people who set everything up was probably the funnest part. You know, the people who, who take care of setting up all the cameras, the, the oh, setting yeah. and. Yeah, everybody was really nice, you know. They're, they thanked yeah. me for doing my job for <laughs> for thirty days. So yeah, it was it was interesting. You uh, you treat the crew right, and you're gold on a set. That's for sure. Well, you know, you're supposed to get a hold of people to let them know you're coming because they like to do everything and coordinate away and bust you. And I drove straight to the set and I parked, and, and people from the crew were like, well, "Who are you?" And I said, "I'm Frank Bell. I wrote the book." Oh, hey, you park wherever you want. Hey, it's nice to meet you. And they were all, yeah. man, they were all super nice. I mean, I'd never met nicer people. The, they had a, a, like a couple of food trucks or something. They were cooking me breakfast and then eat dinner oh. with the producer. I mean, the food was amazing. They're like, you know, yeah. you can have whatever you want. You just got to pick one thing. But yeah, the food was great. Yeah. Me and my wife had a great time. It was, yeah. it was interesting. You uh, know, which, and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the food trucks in the in what's called Crafty, which is the place where you hang out for the snacks in between everything. Yep. Uh, it's a little slice of heaven for folks who have not been on a movie set. It is just a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. It is. It is. I love it. All right. Well, let me see. While I'm still running down the thing, uh, let's see. There was that oh so warm and fuzzy story collection called Crimes in Southern Indiana. Yes. Yes. It was almost mm -hmm. like. Uh, it was almost like a Disney book. It was so yeah. Warm. yeah. <laughs> it was like a roller coaster ride to hell on your way to your grandparents' house is what it was. Yeah. It's a wait it's a, a minute. I'm on a highway to hell. Thank you very much, ACDC. All right. Uh well you've been busy. That's very obvious. I I wonder where all this I'm going to use the word rage, Frank, if I may. It feels like a lot of rage in your writing. Where does this come from? Just, just me. I mean, I'm into weightlifting. I've always, I've always lifted weights since I was about 11 or 12 years old. Uh, started studying martial arts when I was around 11 and continued on up into my mid to late thirties until I started getting serious about writing. So I couldn't do both. I just always had that. Right. I guess that's where my discipline comes from, you know, and I yeah. grew up around all these stories from my mother and my grandmother, grandfather, my father, my dad's just, you know, if you have a conversation with my dad, it's like, it doesn't, it's not 10 minutes. It's, it's a very, he's very detailed, always has a story to tell you. And I never thought much about that till I got older. You know, I, I wish I had kept a notebook when I was younger around my, my grandparents and stuff because of just family history. You know, my grand, I should say my step grandfather, because I, that was the only grandfather I ever knew. My real grandfather was very abusive to my mom and my grandmother before I was ever born. And I, I, those were like childhood stories to hear about, Hey, you remember what daddy did to you? Or remember when daddy done this? And 
I didn't meet him till I was probably about 14. My mom finally let me uh, allowed me to meet him. Um, the old mechanic that's in the crimes of Southern Indiana is pretty much a 99 percenter. Uh, that's pretty much a story that was told to me in the beginning. And then the next part of that story is when I finally met my grandfather and he took me to a gun and knife show of all things after hearing all these horror stories about him. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's anything in that first book, really anything for most of my books, I can tell you what it relates to and how I pulled it and turned it upside down to make it more interesting or maybe more sure. maybe worse than what it actually was, you know? So, yeah. Well, that's the job of being a writer. Cut out the uh, yeah. fat middle and uh, ramp it up to more than it is. Right. Yeah. You know, when you're, I guess, blue collar working class, you're constantly at 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 ends trying to, your, your parents are always trying to earn a living, always trying to pay bills. And there's always a conflict that comes in the way of doing that. You know, it's. So I kind of recognized that early on when I started reading Larry Brown, you know, I was probably one of the biggest influences and then discovering other Southern Southern writers that basically was like, well, they're not from Indiana, but they've done all the same damn things that I've done. So now i got to figure out how to write about it and make it interesting. So, you know, I was raised raised in the the whole time frame of, you know, Chuck Norris and Rambo and oh, Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger. That's the kind of stuff I grew up around, you know, and in the, the old Shaw brother movies from you know, the old Chinese movies from Shaw brothers, I grew up around that black belt theater on Friday or Saturday night. I'd watch as a kid. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's where all that comes from. You know, we must be pretty close in age. Cause I mean, I remember all that real well. I'm 49. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're close. <clears throat> um, <laughs> at a decade. Um, so let's see. Let's, uh, oh, FSG Originals, which is the, the folks who, uh, publish this book. I, uh, I went to research them and what a classy bunch of folks with a wide spectrum of work under their belt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're all, they're, they're class. Um, uh, Sean McDonald started that, that imprint. And I think my manuscript was one of the first ones to land on his desk. It was the book of short stories. Or no, I'm sorry. It was Donnie Brook that landed on his desk, and he said, "Has he written anything else?" My agent's like, "Well, yeah, I've got a book of stories." He said, she sent that to him, and he says, "Well, well, hey, talk to us." <laughs> yeah, I'll talk to you. I was working. Yeah. The time I got bumped from the factory, I was still in the factory, but I wasn't working in the factory. I was working in the warehouse, and I'd gotten a text from my agent's like, "Hey, Bruce Rusher Drill wants to talk to you. You want to talk to him?" I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> had like a 45 minute interview with them, and had to go through a Fourth of July weekend, like before I heard any feedback of what they were going to do or how it even worked and then they made an offer and i'm like all right let's do it so. and was your agent uh, is it stacia baker or uh, decker stacia yeah stacia decker stacia stacia yeah. so has she uh, been there from the beginning the beginning yeah uh scott phillips author of ice harvest and neil mm -hmm. smith i've published a lot of stuff under neil used to have a uh website called plots with guns and that was one of the first places other than i think there's a place called thug lit uh that used to uh, do a lot of publishing and they end up picking some of my stories up once I finally understood what I was doing, you know, as far as a writer went. And uh, I did one of the first North to bars, I guess it was in St. Louis that Scott and Jed Ayers had, and then they invited me down. I got to read in front of a, a group of people the first time ever. And I'm sitting there shaking because I never gotten up in front of a little audience and spoke before, but yeah, Scott's like, you need an agent. And uh, he and Neil, that was one of the people they had mentioned with Stacia because she had just, she was just starting out. Um, and uh, sent her the stories, and she liked them. I was working on Donnybrook, and she's like, well, I want to make sure you can write a novel. Just whenever you feel comfortable, just send me whatever rough pages you got. So I went through and edited everything and sent her, like, the first 25,000 words, I think. And then she signed me after that. So Wow. 
finished the novel and then we went through an editing process and all that and got it was right when the economy was going the crap too it was like in 2009 <laughs> yeah and we got a we got a message back within about two weeks which was not normal you know so it was then it was just everything kind of went kind of fast after that <laughs> dude so you got your own so your is your jet parked out in your front yard or your no, backyard oh no, i still work in the factory it's <laughs> not parked in the front yard you know, my stuff's pretty dark. You know, it's not everybody's cup of tea. I mean, that I, I think yeah. the story's there, but it's just not always. Well, let's let's dive into this because first of all, as we move into your book, I, I want to acknowledge your father's service in Vietnam and even more uh, receiving okay. that uh, after tremendous support from your mom, the Purple Heart. Okay. Will you share that story uh, with us? Yeah, basically, he was uh, he was injured in combat, and then he also served. If I understood correctly, it might have all been tied into the same thing, but it was Operation Allenbrook, and he lost pretty much a good part of the platoon. Whenever I'm thinking it was like an eight-hour firefight, and uh, they're just because uh, he was part of a tanker brigade, um, and wherever they were doing like a, I don't want to say search and destroy, but they're doing like a, a recon type stuff where they go through the villages and stuff, and because they're always checking for IDs, weapons, and see if they're the villagers are talking to the BC and all that kind of stuff. And uh, but anyway, there was a a big firefight and uh, he ended up, he saved one guy. What we I finally got to meet here about 10 years ago, maybe. But when he came home, he was kind of disgusted. I don't know. He either lost his paperwork or threw it away. I've never really gotten the real story on that, but he didn't have his paperwork anymore. And then years later he was up for a purple heart and never to get it. So then he spent the next 53 years trying to get his purple heart from, uh, you know, he got the Navy V for valor because he helped load the dead. And then, onto the, the choppers and stuff and then went back into battle, you know, he went ahead, you know, it's just the kind of person he is. But, uh, wow. and my stepmother's the one who kept pushing him, you know, cause they kept going through these roadblocks. Every time you get to the paperwork, something we've messed up somewhere. Cause he had to reconnect with the guys that were still alive from that battle and a tanker brigade that he served with. Cause he swept mines, um, the minefields, which was the minefields were basically the roads that led from his base to these other hills with uh, within Da Nang, which you'd have a special forces base, a recon base, uh, might be a medic, and then other, other infantry bases, that kind of thing. He'd sweep it up and back every day, and he had to sweep that, him and a couple other minesweepers, uh, and the tank was behind them. They'd make sure the tanks could get through. And sometimes you'd get sniper fire. That's what he told me. Sometimes you'd be going down the road, and next thing you know, you're getting gunfire on you, so then you're taking cover. But uh, there was one guy that uh lost his life who'd stepped on a box mine and um because he lost his life it basically saved my dad's my dad and got injured with some type of impact but still went back into serving um he got some hearing loss that he didn't really realize but uh yeah years later as he's trying to reconnect all this he had to reconnect with anybody that was still alive and they just kept messing the paperwork up and then finally you know they got through the right channels everything went through and then he got his purple heart about a year or two ago you know so finally wow and then two of the guys that he served with, one was in the tanker brigade, uh, came in. And then uh, one of the other guys that he saved had came in. So and, uh, the one hmm. guy, uh, Tony de Blasio, was one of the guys he saved. And that's what he's been coming to Louisville, Kentucky for like 20 years. He's big into horse racing. And he would always come uh-huh. in. Him and my dad connected. He was talking about horse racing. He'd come to Louisville. My dad's like, what? He's like, I only live like. 30 minutes from Louisville. You've been coming in all these years, you know, of course they hadn't talked either since they'd served together. And they, when they reconnected, sure. like, yeah. And he's like, we got to get together. And Tony came in, I got to meet him. And that's why he told me, he said, you know, your dad was a, 
He says, your dad's a hero. You know, he said, he saved my life, you know, and that's what my dad said. He goes, man, you look a lot better now than you did then. Hell, you look better than me now. I don't know what you've been eating and drinking, but my dad's a jokester anyway, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And he's doing well now. Oh yeah. 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 He does yeah. Uh, like lawn business on the side just when he feels like it. You know, he has a, <laughs> he likes to get, he's, he's old school. He gets up, drinks his coffee, like still reading the morning paper, you know, yeah, does stuff. He's into gardening and stuff out in the yard and, uh, he did like a handyman thing after he retired just to keep him busy. He likes to stay busy, you know, sure. just, just in his nature. Yeah. Good for him. But I'll tell you what, I'm sitting here thinking about having that job, being the minesweeper. I mean, you're every moment you're on the edge wondering if that's exactly. your last step. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, well, he always says, you know, when we would sit down and when I talked to him about when I was starting this book, you know, I interviewed him um, about pretty much anything that, that's in there from boot camp and everything that's those are actual stories that he was around you know when he was on the bus one of the guys that uh from Gordon we were at rode the bus you know they joined together and went up there and they would say when you know they had to sit there and wait for the di to wake up when he did they come on the bus and just started ripping tail and his buddy like elbows and says man i think we effed up because <laughs> you know they're telling them to get off the bus and then they break them down shave their head take all their stuff and cuss them out and get them in formation and get their clothes on them and start off you know that's yeah <laughs> well there's a i love the photo in the front of the book with your dad uh let's see first engineer c company third platoon of u.s marine corps standing with a rifle in hand i love this got his uh, studious glasses on and look at the chuck taylors i mean I love this. I love that yep. photograph, man. That is yeah. just like. When I saw that photo, it kind of tied in everything. I was like, I've got to write something about it. I've got, I've got to figure out a story about this. And that basically was my time in the factory with his time in the service and the things, you know, that I would learn years later. And, you know, some of the things he carried with him, the, the demons, which are the soldiers in the book that he has to deal with every day. I kind of felt like, you know, that's that sums up what you go through after war. Well, I have found the best quote, so bear with me a second. This is a quoting Christine Tran in her Star Review on Booklist when she says, Bill draws wrenching parallels between battle and family abuse trauma through evocative hallucinations, survival of the fittest settings, and disarming compassion. His descriptions are both ugly and beautiful, often merging the hunt with Miles' Vietnam flashbacks, caption the realities of those resigned to being left behind, and the violence that offers short-lived power. Dude, that's like a that's a soliloquy poem all in one, and it best describes this. It's the hallucinations which what twisted up my gourd when I'm reading it, going in and out. I mean, he's in a scene, he's talking, but he's flashing back and the hallucinations. That was trippy, dude. Like just effing trippy. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad I nailed it on the head, but yeah. That was a little bit of life experience and then re reflection. and. Well, not only does it make you want to read the book, but it, it so perfectly paints the picture of the haunting that goes on in both the book and in your dad's life and the war in general. It gives you, you feel like a little bit of a front row seat to what transpired. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I grew up around war vets and, you know, my dad never wanted me to join the service, but I grew up around that era, you know, I had uncles great uncles that served in world war well my, my my real grandfather served in world war ii he was part of the army corps of engineers invading japan um he was in the time life magazines back in the day where they had pictures of him from being over there um actual photos in combat that he i never knew like 
I always heard that he kept them. And this was secondhand stories, but he had those stacked up around his house and stuff. Uh, he came to a hermit later in life. But then uh, I had uh, an uncle that served in the Korean War, and then my dad in Vietnam, and uh, his cousin, who's a total cut up. Uh, just I was always around it growing up, and then my dad being at the VFW halls when I was a kid. You just, I never really thought that's it's very it's a very rich life experience that you don't really think much about um, because they were all like family anyway. They were never mean they were just telling their war stories or what was going on bad at home or telling jokes and over beers and playing cards you know that's just how we that's just how i grew up and then i had a, a cousin that served in our, iraq he was a uh, helicopter mechanic which was kind of weird he always kind of wonder like why didn't you join the military you know because i was around you and you got me watching full metal jacket when i'm a little kid and here i am in the army now you know <laughs> um so but th- that was one of the things too you know whenever he was when he was in iraq it was like the same thing that my dad said that, you know, the wars are the same, but one's in the jungle and one's in the sand. There's not much of a difference because constantly stuff is blowing up every day and there's gunfire every day. And you never get that out of your head when you come home. It takes forever to get those those memories and vibrations and that feeling out of your out of your mind, which is why a lot of people reenlist. They go back because that's you kind of I guess you kind of get used to Familiar. it. That's what you're yeah, what you're accustomed to, you know. And that may, that begs the question. It makes me wonder how your dad. Not I know it's been you know he Danang was uh, December sixty seven to January of sixty nine. So he was out there for a good little stretch. How does does he? How's he doing today? Does he ever talk about that? Does does yeah, does that haunt him to the? Yeah, growing up he just never really talked about it, but he'll talk to you about it anytime now. I mean, as soon as you mention something, he'll have a memory that he'll tell you about. But he. Uh, I think what helped him the most was going to the VA. I know I think he's done some like I don't want to say counseling, but he's he's talked to other vets. He goes up there for his physical checkups. He always stays up on top of his health and stuff of that nature. But yeah, he's just once he realized he could talk about it, you know, like because he and my mom are divorced, but you know, years later I would find out. You know, my mom would talk about you know like when they first met that he had you know would wake up from horrible dreams and stuff and didn't he wouldn't he didn't really want to talk about it. You know, that's just he was. I think he was just kind of disgusted when he came home. He had, I guess what you would call survivor's guilt, you know, because that's what he told me. He always wondered why, why did this person die and not me? How did I make it out? But then he also had his own little rules to, to survive each day. You know, he would get, he told me he would get mad at people if they didn't keep their guns cleaned, you know, every hour or two. He carried a toothbrush in his helmet to, to keep his, uh, break his gun apart and keep certain uh, mechanisms of the M16 cleaned out because it was known to jam up, you know. And if you're in a firefight, it's too late. <laughs> right. You know? Wow, those little details. That's what really makes the story. It's those tiny little details. Yeah, and you know, I never set out to necessarily just write a, a novel about just the war, but it was kind of like the repercussions of war, if that makes sense, you uh-huh. know, and how it sure, affects sure. your day to day whenever you come home. What are you flipping through to? I was looking, I was thinking I had a photo of him. Yeah, you probably can't see, but he's breaking his gun down when he's over overseas. You know, he was constantly, he took a camera awesome. and took a lot of photos. You know, the, the thing at the, the end, the, the, the end photo with him and the third herd, you know, a lot of those guys yeah. didn't make it out, which is sad, but then some did, but he just lost contact with all of them. He has no way of getting a hold of them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. My great dad, photograph. Dad had down in the corner. <laughs> Let's So I want to, I want to drill down one more step. Um, tell me how, I don't mean this like, Tell me, Frank, where do you get your ideas? I don't mean that because that's too too rookie. But I want to know how you managed to merge so much horrible reality 
with haunting fiction to create this visceral experience because you do you you travel in it's a very palpable feeling when you read this book. You don't always get that. You know, you'll be reading and you'll feel like you're kind of removed from it. But this, I felt like I was right, like my face up against the glass of it. That I did my job. <laughs> uh, basically, because that's just how I was raised. I mean, it was always, I mean, even today, you know, there's still, deal with my, my mother's got cancer, you know, she's had cancer since 2006, not trying to put anything a downer on the, on the show or anything, but you know, there's, there's always, it seems like in your life, there's always tragedy and you're figuring out how to deal with it. You know, um, my way to deal with it has always been my wife and exercise. And we've always had a dog and, you know, go to my job and do what I can do, but I always pay attention to what's going on. I'm always carrying, I mean, well, my journals are right here. I always carry my, my journal with me. You know, my, my wife had me one made up with my name on it and Nice. engraves each of the books that I've done in it, but I just always try to pay attention or even now with your phone, you can constantly, if I'm out running or out on a hike or I'm lifting weights, I'm constantly writing something down that, that reflects something that's going on and reading, you know, there's just certain authors you read and they get, get the, the brain going because you can, oh, yeah. uh, you can reflect and you connect with what, what they've done because it's something similar to what you've done. Uh, that's, that's always been my hard, hard problem with literature. Like, why didn't you like that book? I'm like, I just didn't, I couldn't connect to it. You know, it didn't seem real to me or it wasn't, you know, that's what, what, what always connects me. You know, you read Harry Cruz. I mean, I can connect with all this stuff that the guys done. Larry Brown, uh, uh, William Gay, guys like that, you know, that's just what I know, you know, and I've got a best friend who's a, a police officer. So, I've, you know, I used to, me and him trained in martial arts together and then he became a cop and I always did ride alongs with him. So I always got to be out there and see how things are done, you know, um, and it's in a small rural town, so it's you get to see how the people you keep giving a break to don't want to listen. They keep doing the same stupid stuff over and over. And every time you give them a break, it's like, come on, man. You know, I'm trying to help you here. <laughs> right. But, you know, you get to see the other side. You know, you know, I had a kid that I grew up with that was a, one of my best friends in high school. was an athlete. And... Never done drugs, never drank. He gets out of school and he starts, he got involved in methamphetamine. Next thing you know, he's cooking it and loses his marriage and his house and his wife. And that became Angus. That's how I came to the Chainsaw Angus character. And I had met a guy who who, who uh, was an ex-meth cook, dealer, all that kind of stuff. And became um, working in the medical field. And I got lucky enough to sit down and interview him to come up with a recipe for the Donnybrook, you know, for the meth cook, you know, which was Chainsaw Angus. And then me... Being involved in martial arts, I got to write about bare knuckles boxing because I knew about you know fighting and body mechanics and all that. And then my Chinese yeah. martial arts teacher, Fu, was actually based off of a, an actual person who looks exactly like that, John Ng. You know, um, and uh, he loved the book, but he didn't like the movie. <laughs> but yeah, you I mean, know how many times I hear that? It, it's yeah, just part of the deal. Yeah, write what you know, right? Write, write what you observe. Yeah, and you know, like right. the Savage, the Savage basically with the Van Dorn character. I don't know if you've read that. That's pretty much my childhood. Mm. That's me and my cousins tied into one character and how you people lose their history and where they come from. But you learn, we learn more about the way of the land and hunting and fishing and things of that nature and, and gardening and living on a farm. So I kind of tied that into a character and you had the Savage. So, well. Well, very well done, sir. Thank you. I, as we, as we start to wrap it, I want to, I want to end on an upbeat, uh, 
Not that this has been downbeat. I want to end on, uh, we're going to ask you, what is my classic close, which is your best piece of writing advice. And if you want to hang out for an extra 90 seconds, we'll do a little funzy uh, rapid fire questions because uh, everybody likes okay. that. We can. I'm good. So what is that? If you were, if somebody came uh, sitting down at your knee there in Indiana and said, you know, as he rubs the head of your puppy, say, Mr. Bill, can you teach me how to be a good writer? Don't give up. Keep reading and keep writing. You know, the most important thing you do, what I, it took me forever to learn was you've got to edit, rewrite, edit, move things around and just keep, keep remolding it until it's, it's like a razor blade, you know, until each sentence is really cutting, you know, you want, you want, you, that's what you want. You want that structure and that flow and that movement, but don't give up. Don't ever give up. That is solid advice. And, and, and the, uh, the magic usually happens. And I hear this from a lot of writers, both uh, prominent and otherwise, you know, it's sometimes that second, it could be the fourth, could be the seventh rewrite or tweak that makes it that all of a sudden everything falls into line and pops. Yeah. I mean, I had, I started writing in 99 or 2000. Um, you know, it was 2008 before anything really started to take off. And I mean, I had boxes of rejection letters, boxes of the, the rejection letters were from agents and I had little form letters from the different journals I'd reach out to. And I kept all those, um, you know, and then once I started to write like the old mechanic got returned to me with notes, it was the first time somebody had actually written handwritten notes on it. And I'm like, okay, what did I do right here that got somebody's attention, you know? And then the pencil scoop McCutcheon was one of the other things I'd sent out and it got picked up by a, a, a college journal. So then I had to look at that and say, what, what did I do here? That was right. You know, well, I sat down and obsessed over that story for eight, 12 weeks and edited and re-edited, you know, and cut away all the, the stuff that was unnecessary. Um, and you know, when you have the flow, trust me, when you get lost in your own work, you're doing something correctly. And it is magic, isn't it, Frank, when you get it so streamlined that you're, that you're, 10, 15 pages in and you've already lost yourself and you've forgotten time. Oh yeah. Yeah. You lose track of time, but it's also, it's a, it's a dopamine hit too. Cause you, you feel yeah. good about it, you know, but the thing yeah. is, is you get the next morning and reread it again to make sure you're, <laughs> you haven't screwed something up somewhere. Cause I don't know how many times I've proofread something and missed over. I've just left one word out and then I come back and read it. And I'm like, Oh, good stuff. All right. Let's do a little uh, rapid fire questions. I'm going to start off easy. Uh, favorite environment when writing loud and crowded or silent solace? Silent. I put earplugs in. All right. All right. A bit more esoteric. If your life were a soundtrack, who would be the musician? Who would be the key musician? The lead could be a band, but but if your your life is a soundtrack, what's the band? Somebody like the drive-by truckers or Ray Wiley Hubbard or Scott H. Byram, um, you know, something that's got some grit and groove. Um, that grit and groove. All right, now here's the toughy one. I just made this one up today. You're a guest on my new TV show called Zero to 60 in 90,000 Words. So we're, we're giving you 60 days to write your book. If you do, you'll win money, a movie deal, and an all-expense trip around the world. Now, here's the hard question. What's the first thing that pops in your mind as to the theme and or topic of this new book? Survival. <laughs> okay. Survival. There you go. Uh, and last one, you and your wife, Jen, and your hound dog, Emma, are going to join Tammy and me out here in beautiful Encinitas as we celebrate the movie deal you just landed for Back to the Dirt. Bonus you get to invite two more people to join us. They can be living or past people you looked up to people. You always wanted to meet who are they and why? Probably both my grandmothers. 
just because I miss them. <laughs> sure. That's um, a good one. I like a that. Lot of, a lot of good memories and that's where a lot of the stories come from, you know, so. Good for you. What a great answer. Yeah. All right. Now, folks, I usually would, uh, this is where I, you know, plug your website, but, uh, dude, I cannot find your website to save my life. So where, I've where got can an old people website learn more? That I don't keep updated. It's called, uh, Peeking on the FSG Originals website or, or FSG Originals and Frank Bill, if you go into that and it goes, it gives you my books and it's got some essays on there I've written. There's a thing for pervasion on there and you can pull it right up. It'll take you right to it. Cause I haven't written on that since I was probably last time I was published in Playboy. I put a link up for that. Yeah. Any real, any particular reason you haven't done a website? I'm just curious. You just hadn't got well, I've had two logs and I don't keep them up to date. I mean, it's either, I mean, I even started doing some podcasting, but the thing is when you podcast, you got to research the person you want to have on, you got to make contact with them, get uh -huh. a script of questions, set a time up for something quiet in your home, make, and it has to coincide with the time that they can meet you. And like mm -hmm. when you do all that, it's almost like writing a book, you know, <laughs> you're constantly, it took away from writing and I work a, a day, you know, a night shift job, but I couldn't do both. I had people reach out to me like, Hey, are you going to come back and do the, the, the podcast anymore? I'm like, I'd love to, if I didn't have everything else going on, you know, but it's nice to hear you say that. Cause I, I often wonder not to, it's, there's no boohoo here, but I often wonder if people realize just how much work it goes into it. And, uh, you know, that is part of part of the challenge. If you want to write, you got to figure out way early in the morning or way late at night, because this job right here takes a big old chunk of time. It does. Yeah, you can't. It, it, I couldn't do both. Well, now you can just get your entertainment by watching The Thriller Zone. Yeah, it's, hey, it's quality. You do a good job. You do a great job. Thank you. Speaking of beast, you're a beast too. And this little, this little back to the dirt is a beast of a book. Folks, you want to pick it up. Thank you so much, Frank Bill, for spending time with us on the Thriller Zone. Anytime. Appreciate it. Thanks once again to Frank Bill and his book, Back to the Dirt. I'm David Temple, your host. I'll see you next time for another bonus edition of the Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.